invite you to turn with me to the book of Habakkuk this morning, um, back in the Minor Prophets in the um, Old Testament there. And as you turn there, let's pray together as we begin our time of study. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the joy that it is to understand the truth that You have revealed. And Lord, we recognize that truth only comes from from the Scriptures and that we want to humble ourselves to have Your mind and Your thoughts as we reflect on this truth today. And Lord, we're thankful for Your character that we can cling to and that is, is sure and a foundation for our lives. And I pray that we would be reminded of that even as we study today and that our response would be a life of worship. Lord, we entrust our time to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you think back to the, the last 12 months in our world, you know, many would say this has been one of the most challenging such stretches in history, or at least in recent years. You know, we've had a, a global pandemic. We've faced the economic uh, results of that, the, the emotional results of much of life being shut down. We've seen issues of of violence and political unrest in our country, the, the immediate future, uh, unsure in ways that uh, maybe haven't been at least for, for recent years. You know, when we, when we think of those things for unbelievers, it's really been a, a devastating year in many cases, a, a year, you know, without hope. For believers, it's been a sobering year. It's forced us to, to think about realities that maybe we have taken for granted, things like the joy of assembling together. You know, we've been faced with realities about the future of our, our country that, that shake that foundation of hope of, of what the future holds in, in this life. You know, in times like these, when the immediate future seems uncertain, when the depravity of our nation is on display, we can easily respond with questions like, why, Lord? Or, how long, Lord? These are similar questions raised by the prophet Habakkuk in this little book. Habakkuk was a prophet of Judah, the southern kingdom. We don't know much about him other than his name. The book doesn't reveal personal details about him. It doesn't even tell us exactly when he prophesied, although we get some context clues from the book itself. He speaks of rampant violence, and and he speaks of the coming judgment of the Babylonians, so most likely this was uh, shortly before that coming judgment, which came in 605 B.C., probably after the reign of Josiah, the last good king of Judah. The northern kingdom of Assyria had already been taken captive in 722 B.C., the, the southern kingdom, Judah, had some good kings that led the people in revival at various times, and so they were spared from that uh, during the reign of, of King Hezekiah. After Hezekiah, there was a wicked king named Manasseh and his son Ammon, and then Josiah came on the scene and led the people back to the Lord. Well, as the, the reign of Josiah unfolded, the Assyrian Empire began to crumble, and, and there was somewhat of an international power vacuum. Egypt was on the rise, the Babylonians were on the rise, but it led to probably a sense of, of, uh, of comfort for those in Judah, you know, that, where they had a false sense of security. There was no one really threatening them, at least that they anticipated at the time. Well, after Josiah's reign, things quickly deteriorated again. 
and the remnant of faithful ones like Habakkuk looked at what was going on around them and they saw the, the return to evil and immorality and wickedness and they were watching those things happening and, and trying to uh, reconcile the theology they knew that was true about God and what they were witnessing around them and, and the result was some questions that Habakkuk raises. They saw these reforms had not been wholeheartedly embraced, and they looked around and said, what is it that God is doing now? How is God at work? Back, he didn't doubt God. He didn't doubt the character of God, but he struggled to see how his present circumstances reflected that truth. Notice verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, says this, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. He says, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. See, Habakkuk looked at the world around him and he saw much of what we see today. He saw violence and destruction. He saw iniquity and wickedness. He saw strife and contention. He saw the law ignored and justice perverted. And as he considered what he believed to be true about God, he cried out, how long, O Lord? When are you going to do something about this? He cried out, why, Lord? Why haven't you done anything? Why are you uh, uh, going to uh, allow these things to continue? You know, this is a common struggle for the people of God in a fallen world. These are the common cries from the the hearts of those who know and love God. If we had time, we could look at the Psalms and other places where these expressions of the godly arise as we consider the sin and wickedness of the world and the character of God. Well, God answered Habakkuk. He doesn't always answer us, but He answered Habakkuk and He gave him this prophecy for himself and for the other godly ones in, in, uh, in Judah and as a rebuke to those who were wicked. And he said, I am doing something. In verse 5, he, he said, I, I'm going to do something that you wouldn't even believe if I told you. I'm raising up the Chaldeans or the, the Babylonians as we refer to them. Habakkuk got that answer, and it really raised more questions for him. He's like, he said, you know, they're, they're worse than we are. How does that work in light of your holiness? You're using someone more wicked to judge the people of Judah. God said, I'll ultimately judge the Babylonians too. Justice will come, but it will come on my timetable. And ultimately, Habakkuk, for you and for the people, the right response is to live by faith, to trust me theme verse of this book is in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. He says, the, the answer to your questions ultimately, Habakkuk, is to live by faith, to continue to trust me. It's a contrast of the proud and those who live by faith. You see, when Scripture says the righteous will live by faith, as it does here, there are really two senses in which it it speaks of that. The first is in reference to our justification, to being declared righteous, the fact that we have life, eternal life, by faith and by faith alone. See, the proud one, the one who exalts himself, who trusts in self, his soul is not right within him. He has 
no peace with God. The one of faith, though, who exalts and trusts in God, his soul is made righteous on the basis of the sacrificial death and and the life of Christ. Paul quotes this verse in a couple of places to make that point in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, he says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. He quotes similarly in Galatians 3.11. He says, we can be declared righteous by faith. We can have righteousness, a righteous life by faith. But it's more than just being saved by faith that God is communicating. The second sense in which the righteous will live by faith is that once you are righteous by faith, you will continue to live by faith. Hebrews 10.38 puts it this way, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You see, once we're saved by faith, we will continue to live a life of faith, trusting God through the circumstances of life. See, Habakkuk is about a life of faith and uncertain times, and times when you're filled with questions of why and how long we are to live by faith. As one author writes, trust in the purposes of the Lord despite confusing perceptions of precisely what he is doing lies at the center of the thought of Habakkuk. When you look out and you say, "Huh, not sure what you're doing, Lord, on the national scale, on the individual personal scale of your life, Habakkuk reminds us that we are to live by faith, we're to trust the character and the goodness of God, the justice of God. But if we stop there, we could conclude that the right response to God in the midst of uncertain days is simply a resigned faith, a, a, well, okay, you're God, I'm not, I don't know what's going on, but I I guess I'll, I'll go along with it. And that's certainly the first step on the road to right thinking, but it ought not be the final destination. Because chapter 3, where I want us to focus this morning, takes us a step further from a life of faith in uncertain times to a life of worship in uncertain times. Now, chapter 3 has 19 verses, so we're not going to dig into all the details, but I want you to see the big picture here of a life of worship in uncertain times. Just notice some things about chapter 3 as we begin. Notice the title. It says that it is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. It says it's a prayer according to Shigionath. It's a, it's a rare term. We don't know entirely what it means. It's used in Psalm 7 as well, likely a musical term. Some, some versions translate it as it's a prayer sung by the prophet Habakkuk. Don't, don't worry, I'm not going to sing this to you this morning. You see some other things that, that reflect more of the Psalms, you'll you'll notice at the end of verse 3 and verse 9 and verse 13 that phrase or that word selah, again a a term typically found in the Psalms with some musical connotation. You'll see it at the end of this chapter, verse 19, it says it's for the choir director on my stringed instruments. You see this chapter is really a psalm of praise. Culminating in verse 18, I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. This is shocking, really. This is a minor prophet, a book that is declaring what will come, judgment on Judah and ultimately judgment on the Babylonians, 
and it concludes with this song of worship. And it's not simply a personal song. It is a prayer of Habakkuk. It's the cry of his heart, but it is a song that was to be used corporately. It was for the choir. This was to lead the people in how they should respond to the message of this book, and it is worship. As they wait for the Babylonians to come and to bring God's judgment for the wickedness of the nation, what is to be their response it is to be that of worship. You know, I think some of the most shocking and profound examples in Scripture deal with this response of worship in the midst of uncertain or difficult times. Your mind might go, as mine did, to, to David in 2 Samuel 12, 18 to 20, when his little child was near death and, and he was pleading with the Lord that he would, would spare that child and And when it says in verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. And so David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is. And David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And did he just say, "I'll, I'll trust God's doing something? No, he came into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Or you think of Job and In Job 1, after his oxen and donkeys were stolen and servants had been killed by raiders, after his sheep and servants had been consumed with fire from heaven, after his camels were taken and his servants killed again by raiders, after his sons and daughters were crushed in a great wind, did he just say, I guess I'll trust that God is doing something? No, it says in verse 20, Job arose, tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he worshiped. Were these men nuts? Were they driven crazy by the extreme sorrow and anguish arising from their circumstances? No, they responded with the utmost of reason, the worship of the true and living sovereign creator and Lord, ascribing or giving praise to the one whom it is due. And such is the pattern we find here in Habakkuk 3 and And so in this this psalm of praise, we're reminded that the appropriate response to difficult or uncertain days is worship. How can we respond that way? I want us to see five realities of a life of worship in the midst of such times. The first, before we even get to the text of chapter 3, flows out of the context of chapters 1 and 2. I've alluded to it already that a life of worship is coupled with a life of faith. You see, you cannot live in chapter 3 unless you have wrestled through chapters 1 and 2. You will not worship a God you are standing in judgment on, thinking you know better than Him. You will not worship a God you are angry at or disappointed in because of your circumstances. You will worship God when you are humble before Him, trusting His providence and, and that ultimately His good purpose and will will be accomplished. See, we can't skip over chapters 1 and 2. We can't live a life of worship apart from a life of faith. If you have wrestled through chapters 1 and 2, if you've said, Lord, how long and why are you doing these things? And you've come to that place of saying, I'm going I'm to trust you. I'm going to live by faith. You will live in chapter 3. You can't trust God as good and wise, as just and, and righteous as your Savior and sovereign and not worship Him. So if you are struggling to worship God as you know you ought this morning, 
as we sang together and prayed together, consider your own heart. Are you humble before Him, trusting Him for salvation and trusting Him for all the details of your life? Or are you somewhat arrogant before Him, relying on yourself or believing you know what is best for your life? A life of worship is coupled with a life of prayer. Secondly, we see a life of worship is, or is coupled with a life of faith. Secondly, a life of worship is cultivated by prayer. This psalm is a prayer, as I mentioned. Verse 1 says it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. An individual prayer to the Lord and a corporate prayer. As we prayed together even this morning, it was intended to, for the congregation. Both cultivate a, a life of worship as we pray individually, as we pray corporately. Notice how he begins this prayer. He says in verse 2, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. He says, I've, I've heard what's coming, the coming judgment of the Babylonians on Judah and the coming judgment of the Babylonians, and as I reflect on those things, I fear. I don't think he's referring to the circumstances, I fear the Babylonians coming. I think he's referring to the, the, the perspective he has of God, I am in awe of you, as that word is often used. This is the context for his prayer. I see what's happening, I see what's coming, and I am in awe of you, Lord, and therefore I come to you in prayer. And he brings this petition in verse 2, O Lord, revive your works in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make it known. In wrath remember mercy. What's he praying here? He's, he's really praying that God would continue to work in the way that He has in the past in the future. He's saying, revive your works. Continue the things that you have done in the past. Continue in the midst of your wrath to display mercy. God, as you judge righteously and rightly your people, do so with mercy coupled with that. This had been God's pattern. He had cared for His people for generations. Habakkuk will rehearse some of that in the coming verses. He's saying, God, do what you have always done. Continue to be faithful to your people. Continue to display your character through the works that you have done. How does coming to God in prayer in this way cultivate worship? Well, prayer by its very nature, focuses, focuses us on God, doesn't it? Helps us get our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and turn our attention and focus on the Lord. It also frees us from our cares or our anxieties. You're familiar with the verses in the New Testament like 1 Peter 5, 7 that says we're to be casting all our anxiety on Him because He cares for you. We're to, to throw the things that are troubling to us, that are causing us to worry, on the Lord. We don't have to bear those things anymore. Or, or Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, we cast our cares to Him, on Him. We don't have to continue to worry about them. They're in God's hands now. We don't try to control or manipulate our circumstances. We can just trust and rest in the fact that He's going to take care of things as He desires. 
See, prayer focuses us on God, gets our eyes off ourselves. It frees us from being consumed with our circumstances because we can trust the Lord, and, and it fosters our humility. It just puts us and keeps us in our place. Right before 1 Peter 5, 7, that we are to be casting our anxieties on Him, Peter writes this, he says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting your anxieties on Him. See, why don't we cast our cares on the Lord? Peter says it's because we're proud. It's because we want to hold on to them and we we want things to work out the way we want them to work out. But when we're humble, we can cast those things on Him. Prayer reminds us that we are dependent on the Lord and that He is the sovereign and sufficient one it keeps us humble, and that leads us to worship. You know, if you're struggling to pray in the midst of uncertain times and, and difficulties, use the Scriptures as a pattern. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray or how to pray, but the Psalms are filled with prayers. Read them. Look for those that resonate with the season of life or the circumstances that you are facing. Use resources like, like Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers that can just help fuel our soul with the right thoughts and, and right expressions of our hearts to the Lord. Participate in, in corporate prayers like we did earlier, eagerly focusing and paying attention and, and letting those shape our hearts and provide a pattern for us. A life of worship is coupled with a life of faith. It's cultivated by prayer. And thirdly, we see a life of worship is constructed on a clear vision of God. It's built on the foundation of a right view of God. Verses 3 to 15 of this chapter are all about expressing and giving us a right view of God. Now, in some ways, this is a difficult section of Scripture to understand, though I think you'll find the overarching meaning is quite clear. You can divide this, as your, your translation may, uh, with the little bold numbers of the verse references, into two sections, verses 3 to 7 and verses 8 to 15. Verses 3 to 7, you'll see, refer to God in the third person. It's talking about He, as though He is being observed Verses 8 to 15 refer to God in the second person, you, talking to God, or clearly talking uh, about Him. The first section describes really a vision of God. The second describes Him and and speaks to Him more as a a warrior coming in in triumph. And one of the challenges of interpretation of this section is is the tense of the verbs. Now, don't get intimidated by this. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but verses... Some of the verses are translated in the present tense. Notice verse 3. It says, God comes. Verse 4, His radiance is. Those are present tense, as though it's happening now. But most are translated in the past tense. Verse 6, for example, He stood and surveyed the earth. Could mean that those things are referring to events that have occurred in the past, or could be what's sometimes referred to as the prophetic perfect or past tense future events that the prophet has already seen or God has already revealed and are so sure that they're referred to as though they'd already happened in the past. So some view this description of verses 3 to 15 as more of a present vision of God coming in response to the prayer. Some view it more as a recounting of past events connected to uh, Habakkuk's prayer that God would continue to act as he had. 
And some view it as a description of, of future events, as God's coming in judgment of the Babylonians or in ultimate judgment of the future day of the Lord. I would say this, regardless of whether this is a vision Habakkuk kind of saw in the present, whether it's Habakkuk compiling biblical themes related to God's past acts, or whether it's a vision of God coming in the future, the emphasis is the same. It's a clear vision of God in His glory. You read these verses, and you may scratch your head at a couple points and say, I'm not entirely sure what you're talking about, but I do know that God is awesome and amazing. That type of a vision of God is foundational to a life of worship. You see, most aspects of life are, are built on some sort of foundational understanding. You want to learn how to do math, what's the first thing you start with? Well, you learn your numbers, you learn how to count. You want to learn how to read, you learn your letters and the sounds that they make. You want to learn how to play music, you learn your notes. You want to live a life of worship, you need to learn about God. You need a clear vision of God. As we consider this, as we look briefly at these verses, I think we see three aspects of this clear vision of God all molded together in one. One commentator puts it this way. He describes these verses as a collage, a collecting of many images to convey an impression both of past experience and future expectation. So picture these verses as, as a collage, as all kinds of things pulled together, and it highlights three realities about God. The first is a vision of God's unchanging character. You'll see ref, uh, references to God's holiness to His splendor and glory, to His power, His steadfastness, His sovereignty, His wrath, His steadfast love and mercy. It's also a vision of God's past works. We'll see allusions to the flood, to the exodus, to the conquest of Canaan, to the things that God has done in the past, and you will see a vision of God's future triumph. Look briefly with me at these verses. He says in verse 3, Describing God's glory and, and allusions to the Exodus, you'll, you might recognize some of the geographic references here. He says, God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from His hand and there is the hiding of His power. Before Him goes pestilence and plague comes after Him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushion under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. He's referring back to the glory of God displayed in the Exodus as the people were moving towards the promised land and all around the nations around heard of God's glory through the deliverance from Egypt. God is glorious and mighty. He is a powerful deliverer. He continues to shift the focus to God as a warrior speaking to Him in verse 8. He says, a question, did the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers, or was your wrath against the sea? He's saying, it was, was God's wrath primarily in those days uh, about uh, or against creation? 
And the answer is no. It was primarily against the nations who, who were against him. Verse 9, he says, your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Could be a reference, again, to the exodus, to the waters surrounding the Egyptians. Could be a reference to the, to the flood, God's past act of judgment. Verse 11 says, sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming, gleaming spear, likely a reference to that long day of Joshua when, when God's enemies were judged and, and the people were delivered, when the sun stood still in the heavens. The, the summary of this, verse 12, in indignation you marched through the earth, in anger you trampled the nations, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, you struck the head of the, the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devoured the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. What's the point? It's that God is that warrior who goes forth for the salvation of his people, that God will reign and rule victorious, that his people will be delivered. He will come in judgment. Let me just say, you don't want to be on the wrong side when God comes in judgment. It may look at times in this life as though God is not winning to you, and you may think, you know, no big deal, I'm fine on my own side, living for my own life and and living the way I want to live. But this is the picture of God coming in judgment to destroy all of those who are his enemies. He has done it in the past. He will do it again in the future. But you don't have to face that judgment. You can humble yourself and and repent. You can turn from your sin and your pride and trust in the, the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, crying out to God to be saved, and he will be merciful to you. You will become his child. You will be the one that he is is coming to provide salvation, ultimate salvation for. You don't have to be on the wrong side of God's judgment. You can humble yourself even today. Because this is our God. This is God's character, God's power, God's faithfulness to his people. This is what God has done in the past. Think back to all that He has done to care for His people, revealed on the pages of Scripture. Think back to all that He's done in your own life to display that faithfulness. And this is His future triumph. God will win. Why can we worship in uncertain times? Why can we have that heart? Because God's character is unchanging. He is faithful to His past works as He has been in the past, and He will triumph in the future. You want to live a life of worship in uncertain times, cultivate your vision of God as revealed in His Word. Read and meditate on His unchanging character. Dwell on His past works. Contemplate His future triumph. You know, I know I'm tempted like all of us to to read more news headlines than I need to or to spend more time on social media keeping up with current events. And let me just encourage all of us, 
We need to focus more on God's character and what God has revealed than all that is going on around us. doesn't mean we don't need to be aware and, and informed citizens, but we need to remember to, to focus our heart and mind on who God is. A life of worship is coupled with a life of faith. It's cultivated by prayer. It's constructed on a clear vision of God. And, and at this point, Habakkuk transitions to more personal reflection, and he gives a fourth reality about a life of worship. A life of worship is disconnected from our circumstances. It's disconnected from our circumstances. Look at verse 16. Habakkuk writes, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Habakkuk says, I, I heard what was coming. I, I accepted what you have revealed. I'm trusting you, and yet my inward parts are trembling and quaking at the news. You see, when I say a life of worship is disconnected from our circumstances, I don't mean that our circumstances have no effect on us. They do, and they can have a powerful impact. He, he was physically shaken as he considered what was coming. Lamentations 3 is another great example of this. As Jeremiah records, just the physical anguish of, of seeing the destruction of Jerusalem our circumstances often affect us emotionally, physically, but they ought not keep us from worship, nor are they the basis for our worship. Habakkuk could not be clearer about this. He continues, I'm, I'm quaking, I'm, I'm trembling, I'm quivering because I must quietly wait for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. He, he's, he's overwhelmed by what is coming, but he says this, verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. We see six conditional clauses, though this happens, though this happens, though this happens. They seem to be an increasing order of severity. No more figs, he says. You know, that was more of a delicacy. No more grapes, no fruit of the vine, no more wine, but we'll probably make it. No olives used for oil, for lighting and cooking, like our power going out. And in Texas, we had a big winter storm uh, a couple weeks ago, and we, we dealt with power outages. You know, not fun, but you can get through it. No grain, he says, like losing our food staples. Now we're talking about significant threat of starvation. No sheep used for clothing and a key part of the wealth and, and economy. No cattle, again, used for work central to the economy. At that point, it's full economic collapse. You know, you might not be worried about figs and olives and sheep, but think about what your six might be. You know, that delicacy that you enjoy that, you know, Andy's closes down or whatever it is, you know, yeah, we'll probably live. You know, though my car breaks down, more, more significant, though my, the, the stock market slumps, though I, I lose my job, though I lose my health or, or my loved one. That's what Habakkuk is anticipating on a national scale. What's Habakkuk's response? 
Does he circle back to chapter 1? Why, Lord? What are you doing? They say, woe is me. How could you, God? That's a bit over the top. I mean, I see we don't deserve figs anymore, but this is getting a little much. No. He says, yet I will exalt in the Lord. If all that happens, I will exalt in the Lord. New American Commentary says this, as though he might lose everything in this world which normally brings life and joy. Habakkuk vowed to rejoice in the Lord and to joy in God. Do you believe that's possible? That you can have nothing in this world that would normally be sought after for happiness and yet worship and rejoice. Our worship need not be and ought not be contingent on your circumstances. Beloved, a life of worship is disconnected from our circumstances. It can be a beautiful day with good health and a full bank account and the appropriate response is worship. It can be a dreary day with poor health and nothing and the appropriate response is worship. Not that we don't worship in response to what God has done for us. It's that we have a spiritual perspective on what His greatest and most constant blessings are, and those are not tied to our ever-changing physical circumstances. They are tied to an unchanging reality, which brings us to the final reality about a life of worship. A life of worship is centered on the God of our salvation. What does Habakkuk say? He says, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. He says, I will exalt in the Lord. Elsewhere, it's translated to be, to be jubilant, to express exceeding joy. He says, I will, I will rejoice. It's a similar idea to shout in exaltation. It's actually used back in chapter 1, verse 15 of the, the Chaldeans as they are conquering people. It says, therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Picture that, that army celebrating and cheering after they have defeated their enemy and taken the spoils of war. Habakkuk says, I'm going to rejoice like that. I'm going to shout in exultation, not because of my circumstances, but because of my God. He says, I rejoice in the Lord in the God of my salvation. That's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. And in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We read those things and we're like, always? Always. Like, like all the time, no matter what's going on, why? How can we do that? It's because God never changes. The salvation of His people can never be taken away. So we always have reason to rejoice and exalt in Him. Turn briefly to 1 Peter one, and we see this so clearly. First Peter 1, Peter writes to those who are facing trials and will face increasing trials, and he says in verse 3 of First Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then in verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, 
even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why do we rejoice in the midst of trials? Why do we rejoice in the midst of uncertain times? Why do we rejoice when there's no figs or olives or sheep or cattle? Because God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because we have an inheritance that's not tied in this life, it's eternal. We are joint heirs with Christ and God is protecting us. We will finish the course of this life because of God's continued grace and mercy. And so we greatly rejoice even though we have trials in this life. No matter what we face, we have reason to praise. You know, for some here today, this is an impossibility because you don't have that foundation of joy. Your joy is a roller coaster because the best thing in your life is your circumstances and and frankly, sometimes they're not very good. And so when life is going well, you have joy and when it's not, you don't. You may be here today and rather than delighting in God, the reality is He is your enemy and Rather than being able to rejoice in salvation by grace through faith, you only face future judgment because you've not repented of your sin. Habakkuk says, I can rejoice in the midst of whatever circumstances the Lord brings because God is my salvation. Because that is secure and unchanging. And he says, I can not only rejoice, but I can endure in whatever circumstances the Lord brings because he gives me strength. That's verse 19. He says, the Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, the sovereign one, the Lord is my strength. He makes me like a, like a deer scaling the rocky mountain areas with sure and steady footing." You see, God gives us the grace to rejoice regardless of our circumstances, and He gives us the strength to walk through those circumstances because He is the one who has all power, and He is the one who strengthens us. So a life of worship in the midst of difficult or uncertain times is coupled with a life of faith. We must trust God before we will worship Him, and if we trust Him, we will worship. A life of worship in uncertain times is cultivated by prayer, both individually and corporately, getting our eyes off of ourselves, focusing on the Lord, entrusting our circumstances and trials to Him, casting those on Him. It's constructed on a clear vision of God, an understanding and meditation on God's unchanging character, on His past works, and on His future triumph. It's disconnected from our circumstances. We don't ebb and flow based on what's going on in our life, and and that's because it's centered on the God of our salvation, the unchanging core of our worship and joy. You know, for Habakkuk, the time to cultivate a life of faith and a life of worship was not in the midst of the Chaldean raid on Judah. They knew it was coming, but God gave them this this book and this chapter, this psalm, to cultivate that heart before it. See, it's pretty tough to cultivate this heart in the midst of those trials. We, can, we should, and, and we should encourage one another to that end. Habakkuk was anticipating those things, and he was cultivating this heart prior to those dis- difficulties coming. You know, I don't know what tomorrow brings for you personally, for, for me and my family, for your church or mine, for our nation. 
But I do know that regardless of what it is, the right response for us is a life of faith to continue trusting the Lord. And the right response is a life of worship, exalting the God of our salvation. May God give us the grace to honor Him in those ways in the days ahead. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for Your character, grateful for Your past works that display Your power and Your faithfulness to Your people. Lord, we think particularly of the cross, that You have demonstrated Your love and mercy, Your justice and wrath on the cross for our sins. And and Lord, we do recognize that these are uncertain days. Lord, individually, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Lord, many in this room are facing personal trials and struggles in various kinds. And Lord, we don't know nationally what the future holds. And, and yet we pray that you would give us the grace to trust you, to live by faith, believing you and believing your word, and, and that you would give us the grace to live a life of worship exalting in you, in the God of our salvation, so that you are praised and you receive the glory that is due. Lord, give us that grace as we face the coming days. In Christ's name, amen.